1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable, ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Join Tales for Darkness. (laughs)
2: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening classic horror fiction about deadly discoveries, macabre manifestations, and untimely elixirs. Tonight's tales come to us from three masters of the macabre, all from a hundred plus years ago, which just goes to show that some things really are timeless, especially the things that terrify us. I'm Otis Jiry, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark Podcast, soon to be in its eighth season, beginning next week. My show's available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found. And tonight, I'll once again be filling in as host on behalf of my very good friend, Steve Taylor. I hope you get better soon, Steve. And I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Algernon Blackwood, Agnes MacLeod, and Mary Shelley, to life our voice talents Daniel Gurzinski, Heather Thomas, and Pontus Danielson. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights, and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Algernon Blackwood and is performed by Daniel Gurdzinski. In our first round of frightening fiction tonight, originally published more than 100 years ago in 1916, we'll meet John, whose run-in with fate while out shopping for holiday gifts is about to take a turn for the strange. Without further ado, I present to you Transition.
3: John Mudbury was on his way home from the shops, his arms full of Christmas presents. It was after six o'clock, and the streets were very crowded. He was an ordinary man, lived in an ordinary suburban flat, with an ordinary wife and ordinary children. Did not think them ordinary, but everybody else did. He had ordinary presents for each one, a cheap bladder for his wife, a cheap air gun for the boy, and so forth. He was over fifty, bald in an office decent in mind and habits of uncertain opinions uncertain politics and uncertain religion yet he considered himself a decided positive gentleman quite unaware that the morning newspaper determined his opinions for the day he just lived from day to day physically he was fit enough except for a weak heart which never troubled him and his summer holiday was bad golf while the children bathed and his wife read Garvis on the sands. Like the majority of men, he dreamed idly of the past, muddled away the present, and guessed vaguely after imaginative reading on occasions at the future. I'd like to survive all right, he said, provided it's better than this, surveying his wife and children and thinking of his daily toil. Otherwise, and he shrugged his shoulders as a brave man should. He went to church regularly, but nothing in church convinced him that he did survive, just as nothing in church enticed him into hoping that he would. On the other hand, nothing in life persuaded him that he didn't, wouldn't, couldn't. I'm an evolutionist, he loved to say to thoughtful cronies over a glass, having never heard that Darwinism had been questioned. And so he came home gaily, happily, with his bunch of Christmas presents for the wife and little ones, stroking himself upon their keen enjoyment and excitement. The night before, he had taken the wife to see Magic at a select London theatre where the intellectuals went, and had been extraordinarily stirred. He had gone questioningly, yet expecting something out of the common. It's not musical, he warned her, nor farce nor comedy, so to speak and in answer to her question as to what the critics had said, he had wriggled, sighed, and put his gaudy necktie straight four times in quick succession. For no man in the street, with any claim to self-respect, could be expected to understand what the critics had said, even if he understood the play. And John had answered truthfully. Oh, they just said things. But the theater's always full, and that's the only test. And just now, as he crossed the crowded circus to catch his bus, it chanced that his mind, having glimpsed an advertisement, was full of this particular play, or rather, of the effect it had produced upon him at the time. It had thrilled him inexplicably, with its marvelous speculative hint, its big audacity, its alert and spiritual beauty. Thought plunged to find something plunged after this bizarre suggestion of a bigger universe, after this quasi-jocular suggestion that man is not the only, then dashed full tilt against a sentence that memory thrust beneath his nose. Science does not exhaust the universe. And at the same time, dashed full tilt against destruction of another kind as well. How it happened, he never exactly knew. He saw a monster glaring at him with eyes of blazing fire. It was horrible. It rushed upon him. He dodged. Another monster met him round the corner. Both came at him simultaneously. He dodged again, a leap that might have cleared a hurdle easily, but was too late. Between the pair of them, his heart literally in his gullet, he was mercilessly caught. Bones crunched. There was a soft sensation, icy cold and hot as fire. Horns and voices roared. Battering rams, he saw, and a carapace of iron. Then, dazzling light. Always face the traffic, he remembered with a frantic yell, and by some extraordinary luck, escaped miraculously onto the opposite pavement. There was no doubt about it. By the skin of his teeth, he had dodged a rather ugly death. First, he felt for his presence. All were safe. And then, instead of congratulating himself and taking a breath, he hurried homewards on foot, which proved that his mind had lost control a bit. Thinking only how disappointed the wife and children would have been if, well, if anything had happened, another thing he realized, oddly enough, was that he no longer really loved his wife, but had only great affection for her. What made him think of that, heaven only knows, but he did think of it. It was an honest man without pretense. This came as a discovery, somehow. He turned a moment, and saw the crowd gathered about the entangled taxicabs, policemen's helmets gleaming in the light of the shop windows, then hurried on again, his thoughts full of the joy his presence would give of the scampering children and of his wife, bless her silly heart, eyeing the mysterious parcels. And though he never could explain how, He presently stood at the door of the jail-like building that contained his flat, having walked the whole three miles. His thoughts had been so busy and absorbed that he had hardly noticed the length of the weary trudge. Besides, he reflected, thinking of the narrow escape, I've had a nasty shock. It was a darn near thing, now I come to think of it. He still felt a bit shaky and bewildered, yet at the same time he felt extraordinarily jolly and light-hearted. He counted his Christmas parcels, hugged himself in anticipatory joy, and let himself in swiftly with his latch key. I'm late, he realized, but when she sees the brown paper parcels, she'll forget to say a word. God bless the old faithful soul. And he softly used the key a second time, and entered his flat on tiptoe. In his mind was the master impulse of that afternoon, the pleasure these Christmas presents would give his wife and children. He heard a noise. He hung up hat and coat in the pokey vestibule, they never called it hall, and moved softly towards the parlor door, holding the packages behind him. Only of them he thought, not of himself, of his family, that is, not of the packages. Pushing the door cunningly ajar, he peeped in slyly. To his amazement, the room was full of people. He withdrew quickly wondering what it meant. A party, and without his knowing about it? Extraordinary! Keen disappointment came over him, but as he stepped back, the vestibule he saw was full of people too. He was uncommonly surprised, yet somehow not surprised at all. People were congratulating him. There was a perfect mob of them. Moreover, he knew them all, vaguely remembered them, at least, and they all knew him. Isn't it a game, laughed someone, patting him on the back? They haven't the least idea. And the speaker, it was old John Palmer, the bookkeeper at the office, emphasized the they. Not the least idea, he answered with a smile, saying something he didn't understand, yet knew was right. His face apparently showed the utter bewilderment he felt. The shock of the collision had been greater than he realized, evidently. His mind was wandering, possibly. Only the odd thing was, he had never felt so clear-headed in his life. Ten thousand things grew simple, suddenly. But how thickly these people pressed about him, and how familiarly! My parcels, he said, joyously pushing his way across the throng. These are Christmas presents I've brought for them, he nodded toward the room. I've saved for weeks, stopped cigars and billiards and, and several other good things to buy them. Good man, said Palmer with a happy laugh. It's the heart that counts. Mudbury looked at him. Palmer had said an amazing truth, only people would hardly understand and believe him, would they? Eh? he asked, feeling stuffed and stupid. muddied somewhere between two meanings one of which was gorgeous, and the other, stupid beyond belief. "'If you please, Mr. Mudbury, step inside. They are expecting you,' said a kindly, pompous voice. And turning sharply, he met the gentle, foolish eyes of Sir James Epiphany, a director of the bank where he worked. The effect of the voice was instantaneous from long habit. "'They are!' he smiled from his heart and advanced as from the custom of many years. Oh, how happy and gay he felt. His affection for his wife was real. Romance indeed had gone, but he needed her, and she needed him. And the children, Millie, Bill, and Jean, he deeply loved them. Life was worth living indeed. In the room was a crowd, but an astounding silence. John Mudbury looked round him, He advanced towards his wife, who sat in the corner armchair with Millie on her knee. A lot of people talked and moved about. Momentarily, the crowd increased. He stood in front of them, in front of Millie and his wife, and he spoke, holding out his packages. It's Christmas Eve, he whispered shyly, and I've brought you something, something for everybody. Look! He held the packages before their eyes, ''Of course, of course,'' said a voice behind him, ''but you may hold them out like that for a century. They'll never see them.'' ''Of course they won't, but I love to do the old sweet thing,'' replied John Mudbury, then wondered with a gasp of stark amazement why he said it. ''I think,'' whispered Millie, staring round her. ''Well, what do you think?'' her mother asked sharply. ''You're always thinking something queer.'' I think, the girl continued dreamily, that daddy's already here. She paused, then added with a child's impossible conviction. I'm sure he is. I feel him. There was an extraordinary laugh. Sir James Epiphany laughed. The others, the whole crowd of them, also turned their heads and smiled. But the mother, thrusting the child away from her, rose up suddenly with a violent start. Her face had turned to chalk. She stretched her arms out into the air before her. She gasped and shivered. There was anguish in her eyes. Look, repeated John, these are the presents that I brought. But his voice apparently was soundless, and with a spasm of icy pain, he remembered that Palmer and Sir James, some years ago, had died. It's magic, he cried, but I love you, Ginny, I love you, and and I have always been true to you, as true as steel. We need each other, oh, can't you see? We go on together, you and I, forever and ever. Think, interrupted an exquisitely tender voice. Don't shout. They can't hear you now. And turning, John Mudbury met the eyes of Everard Minturn the president of the year before. Minturn had gone down with the Titanic. He dropped his parcels then. His heart gave an enormous leap of joy. He saw her face, the face of his wife, look through him. But the child gazed straight into his eyes. She saw him. The next thing he knew was that he heard something tinkling. Far, far away, it sounded miles below him inside him. He was sounding himself, all utterly bewildering, like a bell. It was a bell. Millie stooped down and picked the parcels up. Her face shone with happiness and laughter. But a man came in soon after, a man with a ridiculous, solemn face, a pencil, and a notebook. He wore a dark blue helmet. Behind him came a string of other men. They carried Something, something, he could not see exactly what it was. But when he pressed forward through the laughing throng to gaze upon it, he dimly made out two eyes, a nose, a chin, a deep red smear and a pair of folded hands upon an overcoat. A woman's form fell down upon them, and he heard soft sounds of children weeping strangely, and other sounds, as of familiar voices laughing laughing gaily. They'll join us presently. It goes like a flash. And turning with great happiness in his heart, he saw that Sir James had said it, holding Palmer by the arm as with some natural yet unexpected love of sympathetic friendship. Come on, said Palmer, smiling like a man who accepts a gift in universal fellowship. Let's help him. They'll never understand. Still, we can always try. The entire throng moved up with laughter and amusement. It was a moment of hearty, genuine life at last. Delight and joy and peace were everywhere. Then John Mudbury realized the truth, that he was dead.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie.com. That's A N G I dot com.
2: I hope you enjoyed "Transition," as written by Algernon Blackwood and performed by Daniel Gerzinski. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Agnes MacLeod and performed by Heather Thomas. In this lesser-known tale of terror, originally published in 1894 will be transported to an isolated fishing community in England where one unfortunate gentleman is about to be given a hand. Regrettably for him, it's not the helping variety. (laughs) Now, without further ado, I present to you the Skeleton Hand.
4: I am about to relate some events which took place in the early part of the century, in a remote little fishing village on the south coast of Devonshire. The occurrences are in themselves so remarkable that they have been well known to the present generation of inhabitants, but as things get altered in oral transmission through many persons, it has been thought well to place this record in writing. Near the village of Jodzeel, In a pretty little cottage on top of the bright red sandstone cliff which overhangs the village, lived two maiden sisters, the Mrs. Rudson. Their father, a sea captain, had died about a year before the events I am about to relate occurred. Their mother had died in giving birth to the younger sister, Anne, who was now a most beautiful girl of eighteen. The Mrs. Rudson were very devotedly attached to one another and were much beloved by the village neighbors. The hamlet being a very sequestered one, they seldom saw anyone from the outer world except occasionally sailors, who would stroll along the cliff from Plymouth or from other fishing villages along the coast. In the autumn of 1813, a press gang visited South Devon and made their headquarters for some time in the village of Jodeseal. The captain, a certain Captain Sinclair by name, A coarse, brutal fellow in appearance, was very much struck by the extraordinary beauty of Miss Anne. He forced himself upon her, and continued paying her the most distasteful attentions, which the gentle girl did her very utmost to check, but in vain. The day before Captain Sinclair left Jozeal, he made a formal offer of marriage to Miss Anne, which in the presence of her sister she immediately and decisively declined. Captain Sinclair flew into the most violent passion, swore he had never been thwarted yet by any woman, and that she should belong to him, or never marry at all. Anne was so much upset by the terrible scene, and by Captain Sinclair's outrageous language, that her sister was very glad when an invitation from an aunt residing in London gave Anne a few weeks much-needed change. Mrs. Travers was the only near relative remaining to the Mrs. Rudson, and owing to various circumstances, the sisters had seen but little of their aunt, though with Maurice Travers, her only son, they were better acquainted. Maurice's regiment had been quartered for the summer of 1813 at Plymouth, and he had frequently been over to see his cousins, and many a pleasant summer day had they spent wandering along the beautiful Devonshire coast. Mrs. Rudson had not been slow to perceive that stronger attractions than those of mere scenery brought the young officer so constantly to their cottage. And she was not, therefore, very much surprised, receiving one morning, about three weeks after Anne's departure from home, a letter announcing her engagement to her cousin, Maurice Travers, and her immediate return to Jodseal. It was decided that the marriage should take place early in the following May, and I will now quote one or two passages from Miss rutson's diary at this time. May 1st Such a horrid meeting we've just had. Anne and I had been for a stroll along the shore when we noticed a little boat which lay drawn up under a rock at some distance, when Anne's eyes, which are keener than mine, caught sight of the name painted in gold letters. "'Ah, oh, sister, come away!' she cried. It is a boat from the Raven. I thought Captain Sinclair was not to be in these waters again. He told me he was to sail for the West Indies last month. We turned, and were hurriedly retracing our steps towards the house when we heard a cry of, Stop. "Stop." I looked at Anne. She was deadly white. Run on quick, I cried. I will speak to him. My heart was beating so fast I could run no longer. Besides, I felt it might be well to hear what Captain Sinclair had to say. So, I drew myself together and waited. Presently, he appeared clambering up the side of the cliff, his swarthy face purple with excitement. Where is she? He gasped. I have come back to fetch her. I could not sail without her. My own beautiful Anne. Recollect yourself, sir. I cried indignantly. How dare you speak of my sister in this free manner? She has told you most clearly, and that in my presence, that she looks on your pursuit of her as odious, and she begs, both for her own sake and yours, that you will never attempt to see her again. Do you think I will be daunted by such a speech from a foolish girl? He answered scornfully. No, no, she shall be mine. "'whether she will or no.' "'You are mistaken,' I replied as calmly as I could. "'Next Monday she marries our first cousin, Maurice Travers, "'and will be at peace from your hated persecutions.' "'I shall never forget his scowl of fury "'as he turned from me and dashed down the cliff, "'shouting as he did so, "'She shall be mine.' "'When I got home, feeling very nervous and shaken,' Who should I find starting out to seek me but Maurice, who had come three days earlier than we had expected him? An hour before, I should have felt very cross at having my last quiet hours with Anne so much curtailed, but now I was only too thankful to feel we had a protector near us. He went out after hearing my story, but could see no trace of either boat or its owner. May 2nd. To my great relief, the Raven, with Captain Sinclair on board, has left Plymouth this morning for the West Indies. Maurice had business at Plymouth, and he took the opportunity of making inquiries concerning the Raven, which was, he found, in the very act of putting to sea. I feel, oh, so thankful and relieved. May 4. How shall I ever begin to write the events of this most dreadful day? Such a brilliant, sunshiny morning, quite like summer. And my darling came down, looking like one of the sweet white roses which were just coming into bloom around the windows. I plucked a beautiful spray of them, and she put them in her white satin waistband, just before starting for church. I have those roses by me now as I write, but... Oh, my darling, where are you? The wedding was a very quiet one. After the ceremony, we had the clergyman and doctor with their wives and their children to lunch, and presently Anne rose and said she would go and change her dress. I was going to follow her, but she stopped me with one of her sweet kisses and said, let me have a few moments alone in the old room to say goodbye to it all. I let her go. When did I ever thwart her in anything? She went and Maurice began romping with the children, and we ladies cut slices of wedding cake to be taken round to village favourites the next day, and still Anne did not call. Once, indeed, I had fancied I heard her voice, but when I had gone upstairs her door was locked, and she had not answered my gentle tap. So I came down again, not wishing to intrude upon her privacy. At length, however, Maurice became impatient and said I must go and fetch her down, or they would never be in time to catch the coach at Plymouth. The door was still locked. When I got upstairs, I knocked, first gently, then more loudly. I was not frightened at first, for there was a door window in the room leading down a little flight of steps into the garden, and I thought she had gone down these to take a last look at her flowers. So I called to Maurice to run round to the garden, for she must be there. I remained listening at the bedroom door, which in a moment or two flew open, and Maurice, with a very disturbed face, stood before me. "'She has evidently been in the garden,' he said, "'for the door onto the outside steps was open, but there is no one there now.' "'I made no answer,' but flew past him into the bedroom. It needed but a glance to show my darling had gone straight through the room. Her gloves and handkerchief were thrown on a chair by the window, and her pale blue traveling dress lay undisturbed upon the bed. I ran hastily through the room and garden, which was empty. The gate onto the cliff was ajar, and we noticed, but not till later, that there must have been a struggle at the spot for some of the lilac bows were torn down, as if someone had held fast by them and been dragged forcibly away. Maurice and the rest of the party followed me onto the cliff, for the alarm had now become general. For a little while, we ran wildly, calling her dear name, but presently Maurice came to me and, drawing my arm within his own, led me back towards the house. "'Someone must be here to receive her when she comes home,' he said gently, and here his lips grew white. "'It might be well to have her bed ready, in case.' "'He was out of the room without finishing his sentence. "'It was needless. The same horrible fear had already seized on me. "'The cliff, the terrible cliff. "'I cannot go on writing.' My heart is too heavy. Twelve o'clock. They have come back and... Oh, God! The only trace of her is the spray of white roses I picked for her this morning. They were found on the top of the cliff about a half mile from here. I think they are a message from my darling to me, for they were not trampled on or crushed. She must have taken them carefully and purposely from her belt... They shall never, never leave me. May 11. It is a week since that dreadful day, and not the smallest clue to her disappearance. Poor Maurice is half mad with grief. He has sought for her high and low, and spent all the little sum destined for the wedding journey on these vain researches. Now he wanders along the cliff, up and down, Up and down, and then he comes and sits opposite to me with his elbows on his knees, till I tell him it is time for bed, when he goes without a word. But I hear him pacing his room half the night. May 31st. Maurice has had to join his regiment for his foreign service. I am glad. He would have gone mad had he remained inactive here. September 3rd. I have been very ill. But Patty assures me there has not been a trace of any clue during my time of blessed unconsciousness. And now, the terrible aching void is again here. Oh, my darling. My darling. Come back. September 6th. Why should I go on writing? My life henceforth is only waiting. After this comes a long break of fully twenty years in the diary. Then, in an aged and trembling character, occurs the following entry. May 4, 1835 I don't know what imposed me once more to pen this diary. Possibly this wild hurricane of wind which is making the house rock like a boat has upset me. But I feel so glad and satisfied, as if my long waiting were nearly over. I have just been upstairs to see that all is in order for my darling. We have kept everything aired and prepared for her these thirty years, so that she should find all comfortable when she comes home at last. My poor darling, she will only find Patty and me to welcome her. Let me think. This is nearly twenty years ago since we heard of Maurice's death at Waterloo. Oh, what a fearful crash! And how that rumbling noise goes on sounding as if the cliff has given way! Here the diary abruptly terminates, but the remainder of the tragic story is yet told in that little Devonshire village. The violence of the storm had in very truth caused a subsidence in the cliff, and in doing so, had brought to light a skeleton on which yet hung some tattered remnants of what had once been white satin, and from whose bony fingers rolled a tarnished wedding ring. The bones were collected with tender care and brought to the house of the unhappy sister. She received them without much apparent surprise, directed that they should be laid on Miss Anne's bed upstairs, and as soon as the men had left the house, went and laid herself upon the bed also, where her faithful maid Patty, coming to see after her an hour later, found her stone dead, and held tight in her dead grasp was a pair of white gloves and a lace pocket handkerchief. The two sisters were laid to rest in one grave, and it was not till after the funeral was over that it was discovered that, through some inadvertence, one of the skeleton hands had not been placed in the coffin with the rest of the body. At first there was some talk of reopening the grave, but the old maid Patty entreated so earnestly to be allowed to retain the hand that she at last succeeded in carrying her point. A glass case was made by Mrs. Patty's order, and in it the poor hand was placed. And when Mrs. Patty went down to the inn to spend her last remaining years with her daughter, the landlady, The case was placed on a shelf close to the old woman's seat, and many a time she would recount the sad story to the sailors who frequented the village inn. In the spring of 1837, a larger number than usual were gathered round the fireside of the Blue Dragon. A fearful storm, accompanied by violent gusts of hail, swept around the house. Suddenly the door burst open, and a young man entered, half dragging, half supporting an old man, bent and shrunk with age and infirmity. Here you are, sir, he said to the old man. This is the Blue Dragon. You won't find a snugger berth between here and Plymouth. So saying, he thrust the old man into a chair by the fire, and continued, half aside, to the company. Found the alcove wandering about the cliffs, and thought he would be blown over, so offered to guide him here. I think he is a little. And he tapped his forehead significantly. The rest of the party turned round curiously to gaze at the stranger, who, seeming to wake from some reverie, proceeded to order something hot both for himself and his self-constituted guide. The hot gin and water seemed to further rouse him, and he began asking a few questions concerning the country and neighborhood. But, in the very act of speaking, his attention was suddenly arrested by the sight of the glass case and the skeleton hand. He sprang from his chair with a savage cry of mingled terror and dismay. The hand! he cried. The hand! Why does it point at me? I never meant. Oh, God! And he fell down in a fit, rolling and gasping on the floor and shrieking wildly at intervals, The hand! The hand! They raised the wretched man from the floor and laid him on a bed, whilst the doctor was hurriedly summoned. Meanwhile the sufferer continued disjointed mutterings, till, becoming exhausted, he sank into a stupor. On the doctor's arrival, however, he once more roused himself, and asked in a quieter and more composed manner, whose the hand was. On being told, he trembled violently, but said, I am Captain Sinclair. I knew the wedding day. I told my ship to sail without me from Plymouth, saying I would rejoin her at Falmouth. I meant to bring Anne with me. I hid in the garden. She came into it alone. I rushed forward, Threw a shawl I had ready over her head, and carried her away. She resisted with all her might, but I was a strong man, and her cries were stifled by the shawl. Of course I could not get along very fast, and presently I heard the voices of those in search of her. She heard them also, and made another frantic effort to free herself. My strength was nearly exhausted, But mad with rage and disappointment, I drew my knife from my belt and stabbed her to the heart, crying fiercely. I have kept my oath. You shall never be another's. Then I hurled the body down the cliff, where I saw it catch in a crevice of the rock. Oh, God, he cried, shuddering and covering his face with his hands. I see it now. That dreadful scene, the blue waves dancing beneath the brilliant sunshine, and that white, shapeless mass caught in the frowning cliff with one arm sticking stiffly upwards. I rolled down one or two stones, endeavouring to conceal it, and when I left the spot, all I could see was a hand pointing at me. Here the miserable wretch broke off with a deep groan. In a moment more, he sprang up with another wild shout of, The hand! The bloody hand! And so shrieking, his body fell lifeless to the ground. The skeleton hand in the adjoining room was dripping blood.
2: I hope you enjoyed The Skeleton Hand, as written by Agnes MacLeod and voiced by Heather Thomas. Up next, we've got a third and final dose of darkness for you, a lesser-known tale from the catalog of infamous horror master Mary Shelley, perhaps better known as the author behind Frankenstein, as performed by Pontus Danielson. In Miss Shelley's frightful story, originally published in 1833, we'll meet a gentleman by the name of Windsey, who drinks an elixir with an express purpose of stopping death in its tracks. However, as he and we may soon discover, escaping one's own death doesn't guarantee you'll never meet the Reaper, one way or the other. Now, without further ado, I present to you the mortal... Immortal.
5: July 16th, 1833. Today is my 323rd birthday. The wandering Jew? Certainly not. More than 18 centuries have passed over his head. Compared to him, I'm a very young immortal. Am I then immortal? This I have asked myself day and night for 303 years, yet I cannot answer. I found a grey hair amid my brown locks this very day, yet it may have remained concealed there for 300 years. Some 20-year-olds are white-headed. You may judge for me. I will tell my story and pass some few hours of a long and wearisome eternity to live forever Can it be? I have heard of enchantments that plunged the victim into deep sleep, to wake after one hundred years, fresh as ever. I have heard of the seven sleepers. Thus, to be immortal would not be so burdensome, but, oh, the weight of never-ending time, the tedious passage of the still succeeding hours, but to my task. Everyone has heard of Cornelius Agrippa, His memory is as immortal as his arts have made me. Everyone has also heard of his scholar who, unawares, raised the foul fiend during his master's absence and was destroyed. The report, true or false, of his accident caused the renowned philosopher many inconveniences. All his scholars and servants deserted him. He had no one to put the coals in his ever-burning fires while he slept or attend to the changeful colors of his medicines while he studied. Experiment after experiment failed. I was then very young, very poor, and very much in love. I had been for about a year the pupil of Cornelius, though I was absent when this accident occurred. On my return, my friends told me the dire tale, imploring me to not return to the Alchemist's abode. I required no second warning. When Cornelius came and offered me a purse of gold, if I would remain under his roof, I felt as if Satan himself tempted me. My teeth shattered. My hair stood on end. I fled as fast as my trembling knees would permit. My failing steps were directed whither. For two years they had every evening been attached. A bubbling spring of pure living waters. Beside which lingered a dark-haired girl, whose beaming eyes were fixed on the path I was accustomed each night to tread. I cannot remember a time when I did not love Bertha. We had been neighbors and playmates from infamacy. Her parents, like mine, were of humble life, yet respectable. Our attachment had been a source of pleasure to them. But a malignant fever had carried off both her father and mother, making Bertha an orphan. She would have found a home with us, but unfortunately, the old lady of the near castle, rich, childless, and solitary, adopted her. Henceforth, Bertha was highly favored by fortune, but in a new situation amongst her associates, Bertha remained true to the friend of her humble days. She often visited my father's cottage, and when forbidden to go thither, she would meet me beside that shady fountain in the neighboring wood. She often declared that she owed no duty to her new protectress, equal in sanctity to that which bound us. Yet I remained too poor to marry, and she grew weary of being tormented on my account. She had a haughty, impatient spirit and grew angry at the obstacles preventing our union. We met now after an absence, and she had been sorely beset while I was away. She complained bitterly, and almost reproached me for being poor. I replied hastily, I am honest. If I am poor, were I not, I might soon become rich. This exclamation produced a thousand questions. I feared to shock her but she drew the story from me. Then, with disdain, she said, You pretend to love, yet you fear to face the devil for my sake. Thus, goaded and led on by love and hope, I returned to accept the alchemist's offer and was instantly installed in my office. A year passed. My savings grew even as my fears dwindled. Despite my vigilance, I never detected a trace of a cloven foot, nor was the studio silence of her abode ever disturbed by demonic howls. I continued my stolen interviews with Bertha and hope dawned on, on me, but not perfect joy. For Bertha, though true of heart, was somewhat of a conquette, and I was jealous as a Turk. She slided me in a thousand ways. Yet she would never admit she was in the wrong. She would drive me mad with anger and force me to beg her pardon. Sometimes fancying I was not sufficiently submissive, she told some story of a rival favored by her protectress. She was surrounded by rich, cheerful, and silk-clad youths. What chance had the sad, robbed scholar of Cornelius? Once. The Philosopher became engaged in some mighty work, and I was forced to remain, day and night, feeding his furnaces and watching his chemical preparations. Bertha waited for me in vain at the fountain. Her haunty spirit fired at this neglect. And when I, at last, stole out during the few short minutes allowed me for slumber, hoping to be consoled by her, she received me with disdain dismissed me in scorn, and vouched that any man should possess her hand rather than he who could not be in two places at once for her sake. She would be revenged, and truly she was. In my dingy retreat, I heard that she had been hunting, attended by Albert Hoffer. Hoffer was favored by her protectress, and the three passed in cavalcade before my smoky window, Methought I heard my name, followed by a derisive laugh, as her dark eyes glanced contemptuously towards my abode. All the venom and misery of jealousy entered my breast. Now I shed a torrent of tears, to think that I should never call her mine, Anon. I cursed her inconstancy, yet I must stir the fires of the alchemist still attend to the changes of his unintelligible medicines. Cornelius had watched for three days and nights, nor closed his eyes. The progress of his alembics was slow. Despite his anxiety, sleep weighed on his eyelids. Again and again he threw off drowsiness with superhuman energy. Again and again it stole away his senses. He eyed his crucibles wistfully. Not ready yet, he murmured. Will another night pass before the work is accomplished? Windsy, my boy, you are vigilant and faithful. You slept last night. Look at that glass vessel. The liquid it contains has a soft rose color. The moment it begins to change, awaken me. Till then, I may close my eyes. First... It will turn white, then emit golden flashes, but wait not till then. When the rose-color fades, rouse me. I scarcely heard the last words muttered as they were in sleep, even when he did not quite yield to nature. Wincy, my boy, he again said, touch not the vessel. Do not put it on your lips, it is a filter, the filter to cure love. Lest you cease loving your Bertha, beware to drink. And he slept. His venerable head sunk unto his breast, and I scarce heard his regular breathing, for he had reminded me of Bertha. Serpents and adders filled my heart. false, cruel girl, never more would she smile on me as that evening she smiled on Albert. Oh, how I wished them both dead. I despised her and loved her. Yes, it was love that held me in hopeless, abject thrall to Bertha. Could I but regard her with indifference, forget her and love instead someone fairer and truer? That would be victory. A bright flash darted before my eyes. I had forgotten the adept's medicine. I gazed on with wonder, flashes of admirable beauty, brighter than the gleams of a sunlit diamond. Glanced from the surface of the liquid, the most fragrant and graceful odor stole over my senses. The vessel seemed one globe of living radiance, lovely to the eye and irresistible to the taste. My first instinctive thought, I must drink. I raised the vessel to my lips. It will cure me of love, of torture. I had quaffed half of the most delicious liquor ever tasted by the palate of man. When the philosopher stirred, I started, dropped the glass, and the fluid flame spread along the floor, while Cornelius gripped my throat, shrieking. Wretch, you have destroyed my life work!" The philosopher was unaware I had drunk any portion of his drug. He assumed I had raised the vessel from curiosity and, fringed at the intense flashes, let it fall. I never undeceived him. The medicine's fire had been quenched, its fragrance dissipated. He grew calm, as a philosopher should under the heaviest trials, and desist me to rest. I cannot describe the glory and bliss in which I bathed my soul in paradise that memorable night. Words would be faint echoes of the gladness that possessed my bosom when I awoke. I trod air, earth appeared heaven, and my inheritance on it was to be one trance of delight. This is it to be cured of love, I thought. I will see Bertha today, and she will find her lover cold and regardless too happy to be disdainful, yet utterly indifferent to her. The hours danced away. The philosopher, encouraged by his near success, began concocting the same medicine once more. He was shut up with his books and drugs, and I had a holiday. I dressed carefully, looking in a mirror. I thought my good looks had wonderfully improved. I hurried beyond the precincts of the town, my soul joyous, the beauty of heaven and earth around me. I turned toward the castle. I could look in its lofty turrets with lightness of heart, for I was cured of love. My Bertha saw me afar off as I strove up to the avenue. I know not what sudden impulse animated her bosom, but at the sight she sprang with a light fawn-like bound down the marble steps and hastened toward me, but the old high-born hag, her protectress, nay, her tyrant, had seen me also. She hobbled, painting, up the terrace. A page as ugly as herself held up her train, and fanned her as she hurried along, and stopped my fair girl with her. "'How now, my bold mistress? Wither so fast? Back to your cage. Hawks are abroad.' Bertha clapped her hands, eyes still bent on my approaching figure. I saw the contest and abhorred the old crone, who checked the kind of impulses of my Bertha's softening heart. Hitero, respect for her rank had caused me to avoid the Lady of the Castle. Now I disdained such trivial considerations. Cured of love, lifted above human fears, I hastened forward and reached the terrace. How lovely Bertha looked eyes flashing fire, cheeks glowing with impatience and anger. She was a thousand times more graceful and charming than ever. I no longer loved, oh no, I adored, worshipped, idolized her. She had that morning been given an ultimatum. Should she refuse immediate marriage with my rival, she would be cast out in disgrace and shame. Her proud spirit rose in arms at the threat. But then she remembered the scorn she had heaped upon me, and how, perhaps, she had thus lost her only true friend. She wept with remorse and rage. At that moment, I appeared. "'Oh, Whimsy!' she exclaimed. "'Take me to your mother's cottage. Away from the detested luxuries and wretchedness of this noble dwelling, take me to poverty and happiness.' I clasped her in my arms with transport. The old lady was speechless and broke forth into a furious invective only when we were far on the road. My mother received the fair fugitive, escaped from a gilt cage into nature and liberty. It was a day of rejoicing, which did not need the alchemist's celestial potion to steep me in delight. I soon became Bertha's husband. I ceased to be the scholar of Cornelius, but continued his friend. I almost felt grateful to him for that delicious draught of divine elixir, which instead of curing me of love sad cure, solitary and joyless remedy for evils which seems blessings now, had inspired me with the courage and resolution to win an inestimable treasure, my Bertha. The invigorating blissful effects of Cornelius' drink faded by degrees yet lingered long, and painted life in hues of splendor, Bertha often wondered at my lightness of heart and unaccustomed gaiety, for before my disposition had been serious, even sad, she loved me the better for my cheerfulness, and our days were winged with joy. Five years afterwards, I was unexpectedly summoned to the bedside of the dying Cornelius. I found him stretched and enfeebled on his pallet. All of life that yet remained animated his piercing eyes, and they were fixed on a glass vessel full of rosette liquid. Behold, he said in a broken inward voice, the vanity of human wishes. A second time, my hopes are about to be crowned and destroyed. Look at that liquor. Five years ago, I prepared the same, with the same success, then as now. My thirsting lips expected to taste the immortal elixir. You dashed it from me, and at present, it is too late. He spoke with difficulty and fell back on his pillow. I could not help saying, How, revered master, can a cure for love restore you to life? A faint smile gleamed across his face as I listened earnestly to his scarcely audible answer. A cure for love and all things. The elixir of immortality. Ah, if now I might drink. I should live forever. As he spoke, a golden flash gleamed from the fluid. A well-remembered fragrance stole over the air. He raised himself, weak as he was. Strength seemed to miraculously re-enter his frame. He stretched forth his hand. A loud explosion startled me. A ray of fire shot up from the elixir, and the glass vessel containing it shivered to atoms. The Philosopher fell back, eyes ghastly. Features rigid, he was dead. But I lived, and would live forever, so said the unfortunate alchemist, and for a few days I believed. I remembered the glorious drunkenness following my stolen draught, that bounding elasticity of frame and buoyant lightness of soul. I surveyed myself in a mirror, and could perceive no change in my features during the five years which had elapsed. I remembered the radiant hues and grateful scent of the delicious beverage, worthy of the gift I could bestow. I was then immortal. I soon laughed at my credulity, however. The adage, a prophet is least regarded in his own country, was true for me and my defunct master. I loved him as a man and respected him as a sage, but derided the notion that he could command the powers of darkness and laughed at the superstitious fears with which vulgar folk regarded him. His science was simply human, and human science. I persuaded myself could never conquer nature's laws so far as to imprison the soul forever within its carnal habitation. Cornelius had brewed a soul-refreshing drink More inebriating than wine. Sweeter and more fragrant than any fruit. It probably possessed strong medical powers, imparting gladness to the heart and vigor to the limbs, but its effects would wear off. Already, they were diminished. I was lucky to have quaffed health and joyous spirits, and perhaps long life and my master's hands, but my good fortune ended there. Long liberty was far different from immortality. Thus, for many years, I believed I would meet the fate of all children of Adam at my appointed time. A little late, but still at a natural age. Yet I certainly retained a wonderfully youthful look. I was laughed at for my vanity in consulting the mirror so often, but I consulted it in vain. My brow was untrenched, my cheeks, my eyes, my whole person was continuous as untarnished as my twentieth year. I grew troubled. I looked at Bertha's faded beauty. I seemed more like her son, and Bertha herself grew uneasy. She became jealous and peevish, and at length began to question me. We had no children. We were in all to each other, and though, as she grew older, her vivacious spirit became a little ill-tempered, and her beauty sadly diminished. I cherished her in my heart as the mistress I had idolized the wife I had sought and won with perfect love, but some obstacles love cannot overcome. Our neighbors became suspicious, calling me the scholar bewitched and spreading rumors that I had kept up an iniquitous acquiescence with some of my former master's supposed friends. I was regarded with horror and detestation while poor Bertha was pitied but deserted. I was forced to journey twenty miles to some place where I was unknown, was just to sell my farm's produce. Finally, we sat down by our lonely fireside, the old-hearted youth and his antiquated wife. Again, Bertha insisted on knowing the truth. She recapitulated all she had ever heard about me and added her own observations. She entreated me to cast off the spell. She described how much more commonly grey hairs were than my chestnut looks. She descanted on the reverence and respect due age. And could the despicable gifts of youth and good looks outweigh disgrace, hatred and scorn? Nay. In the end, I should be burnt as a dealer in the black arts, while she might be stoned as my accomplice. At length, she insinuated that I must share my secret with her, and on her like benefits to those I myself enjoyed, or she would denounce me. Then she burst into tears. Thus beset, me thought it best to tell the truth. I revealed it as tenderly as I could, and spoke only a very long life, not immortality. Then I ended. I rose and said, And now, Bertha, Will you denounce the lover of your youth? You will not, I know. But you should suffer no more from my ill-luck and the accursed arts of Cornelius. I will leave you. You have wealth enough saved away, and friends will return in my absence. Young as I seem, and strong as I am, I can work and gain my bread among strangers, unsuspected and unknown. I loved you in youth. God is my witness that I would not desert you in age, but that your safety and happiness requires it." I took my cap and moved toward the door. In a moment, Bertha's arms were around my neck and her lips pressed against mine. "'No, my husband, my winsey she said. "'You shall not go alone. Take me with you. As you say, among strangers, we shall be unsuspected and safe.' I'm not so very old as quite to shame you, my whimsy. And dare I say, the charm will soon wear off. And with the blessing of God, you will age as is fitting. You shall not leave me. Thus, we prepared secretly for our emigration. We made great pecuniary sacrifices. It would not be helped. We realized the sum of sufficient, at last, to maintain us while Bertha lived and, without saying adieu to anyone, quitted our native country to take refuge in a remote part of Western France. It was cruel to transport poor Bertha from her native village and the friends of her youth to a new country, new language, new customs. The strange secret of my destiny rendered this removal immaterial to me but I compassioned her deeply, and was glad to perceive that she found compensation for her misfortunes in a variety of little ridiculous circumstances. She sought to decrease the apparent disparity of our ages by a thousand feminine arts, rogue youthful dress, and assumed juvenility of manner. I grieved deeply when I remembered that this was my Bertha, whom I had loved so fondly. The dark-eyed, dark-haired, of enchanting smile and fawn-like step. This mincing, simpering, jealous old woman. I should have revered her grey locks and withered cheeks, but thus, it was my fault. I knew, but I nonetheless deported this type of human weakness. Her jealousy never slept. Her chief occupation was to discover that, in spite of outward appearances, I was growing old. The poor soul loved me truly in her heart, but she had a tormenting way of showing it. She would discern wrinkles in my face and to in my walk. While I bounded along in youthful vigor, the youngest looking of twenty youths, I never dared address another woman. One time, fancying that the village bell regarded me with a favoring eyes, she bought me a grey wig. Her constant discourage amongst her acquaintances was though I looked so young. There was ruin at work within my frame, and she affirmed that the worst symptoms about me was my apparent health. My youth was a disease, she said. And I ought always to prepare, if not for sudden and awful death, at least to awake some morning, white-headed, and bowed down with the marks of advanced years. I let her talk. I often joined in her conjectures. Her warnings chimed in with my nerve ceasing speculations concerning my state, and I took a earnest though painful, interest in listening to all that her quick wit and excited imagination could say on the subject. Why dwell on these minute circumstances? We lived on for many long years. Bertha became bedrid and paralytic. I nursed her as a mother might a child. She grew peevish and still harped on one string of how long I should survive her. It had ever been a source of consolation to me that I performed my duty screpulsely towards her. She had been mine in youth, she had been mine in age, and at last, when I heaped the sod over her corpse, I wept because I had lost all that really bound me to humanity. Since then, how many have been my cares and woes? How few and empty my enjoyments? I pass here in my history. I'll pursue it no further. A sailor without a rudder or compass, tossed on a stormy sea. A traveler lost on a widespread heath, without landmark or stone to guide him. Such have I been? More lost, more hopeless than either. A nearing ship, a gleam from some far cot, may have saved them, but I have no beacon except the hope of death. Death, mysterious, ill-visaged friend of weak humanity. Why alone, of all mortals, have you cast me from your sheltering fold? Oh, for the peas of the grave! The deep silence of the iron-bound tomb. That thought would cease to work in my brain, and my heart beats no more with emotions varied only by new forms of sadness. Am I immortal? I return to my first question. Is it not more probable that the alchemist's beverage was fraught rather with long livity than eternal life? Such is my hope. And remember that I only drank half the potion. Was not the whole necessary to complete the charm? To have drained half of the elixir of immortality is but to be half immortal. But again, infinity halved is still infinity. Sometimes I fancy age advancing on me. One gray hair I have found. Fool! Do I lament? Yes, the fear of age and death often creeps coldly into my heart, and the more I live, the more I dread death, even while I harbor life. Such a paradox is man, born to perish, when he wars as I do against the established laws of nature. But for this fear, surely I might die. The medicine of the alchemist would not be proof against fire, sword, and the strangling waters. I have gazed into the blue depths of placid lakes and the tumultuous rushing of mighty rivers, and have said, Peace inhabits those waters. Had I turned away to live yet another day? I have pondered whether suicide would be a crime, in one whom thus only the portals of the other world could be opened. I have done all, except becoming a soldier or duelist, an object of destruction to my no, not my fellow mortals, and therefore I have shrunk away. They are not my fellows. The inextinguishable power of life in my frame, and their thermal existence, places as wide as the poles asunder. I could not raise a hand against the humblest or most powerful among them. Thus I have lived on for many years, alone and weary of myself. Desiring death, yet never dying. A mortal immortal. Neither ambition nor avarice can enter my mind. And the ardent love that gnaws in my heart. Never to be returned. Never to find an equal. On which to expand itself. Lives there only to torment me. Today I conceived a design by which I may end all. Without self-slaughter, without making another man a cane, an expedition no mortal frame could ever survive, even endured with the youth and strength that inhabits mine. Thus, I shall put my immortality to the rest and rest forever, or return the wonder and benefactor of the human species before I go. A miserable vanity has cost me to pen these papers. I would not die and leave no name behind. Three centuries have passed since I quaffed the fatal beverage. Another year shall not elapse before, encountering gigantic dangers, warring the powers of frost in their home, beset by famine, toil, and tempest. I yield this body, too tenacious a cage for the soul which thirsts for freedom to the destructive elements of air and water or, if I survive, my name shall be recorded among the most famous of the sons of men. And my task achieved, I shall adopt more resolute means, and by scattering and annihilating the atoms that compose my frame, set at liberty the life imprisoned within and so cruelly prevented from soaring from this dim earth to a sphere more congenital to its immortal essence.
2: I hope you enjoyed The Mortal Immortal as written by Mary Shelley and voiced by Pontus Danielson. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode. And remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Otis Jairi, and it has been a pleasure, as always. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark, (laughs) sweet dreams listener sweet dreams
1: thanks for joining us you've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions.